0: Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and welcome to Everything Cooperative this Thursday morning. It's beautiful here in Washington, D.C., and we have Dr. Caroline Shanaz-Hussein, associate professor at the University of Toronto with us this morning. Good morning, Dr. Hussein.
1: Hi. Good morning, Vernon.
0: And how are you this morning?
1: Yeah, doing great, but it's um, a gray and doomy day here today in Toronto
0: in Toronto you're Toronto Canada
1: so dark and gloomy
0: dark and gloomy (laughs) and Toronto are you you're of African descent in Canada
1: yeah well my parents are from the Caribbean Um, my mom is Afro-Caribbean from a number of small islands some of you some listeners may know of St. Kitts Grenada and Trinidad and my father is a Muslim Indo-Caribbean from Guyana, which I suspect a lot of listeners might be familiar with those places. So, yes.
0: So, your father's Muslim. Is your mother also?
1: No, oh, she's Christian.
0: Oh, that must Seven-day. Seven-day Adventist. That <laughs> yes. must have been interesting, bringing those two religions together in a household. Two
1: extremes. Two extremes <laughs> under one household. Lots of rules, right?
0: <laughs> Lots of rules. <laughs> okay. And was it just you, or you had siblings growing up in that household?
1: Yeah, I have a sister and a brother. Um, Both kind of work in business of some sort. Um, My brother is self-employed, and my sister works for the province of Ontario as a policy advisor
0: for small businesses. For small businesses. Got it. Lots of rules growing up. Uh, And where did you grow up? In the Caribbean or Canada? Right.
1: Yeah, so I was born in New York City, actually, so I'm Mm -hmm. American born. But I was raised since I was very young in the city of Toronto, and in a number of locations around the greater Toronto area, Um, primarily because my parents were immigrants um, to a new place. um, And a lot of that means sort of Settling in and integrating into a new society that takes time. They say a 10 year lag. So that meant a lot of precarity, if you know what I mean, and people sort of moving around until they find a footing where they immigrate to. So, um, yeah. So I know the city pretty well. I live in the West End of the city in a place called uh, Downsview.
0: Okay. So I, I was born in New York also. But I, my parents moved to West Virginia when I was less than a year old where my father is from. And I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia, a very small town. And I've only been to Toronto once. And I saw Ray Charles there, one of the oh. best evenings in my life at a dinner theater to, to watch him play, the only time I'd seen him. And I always think of Canada as a place where black folks went to get out of slavery. And so why did your parents end up moving from New York to Toronto?
1: Yeah, and I think it's a bit of a journey. I mean, I think that when you think about the Caribbean people at large, they were through, you know, forced labor, um, either indentured or enslaved to the Caribbean. And then, I mean, the trajectory of many Caribbeans, particularly at, at, at a certain time, you know, uh, around independence or just post independence, a lot of people were looking for new opportunities, economic opportunities, lots of struggle within the Caribbean at that time, and there still are um issues of contention that exist in the region that make it so that people need to leave and Haiti is a case in point if mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what we see what's going on there. My father moved to New York City. For school reasons and for economic opportunity and my mother followed later. However, it was hard uh, to get um, settled to access a green card as a young Caribbean man. It was very trying, actually. Um, Some of my family has stayed in New York City in the Bronx, but Um, My father chose to emigrate um, at the time Canada was recruiting, actually, young, energetic, actually, Caribbeans, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly if they were settled and married, um, to come, um, I believe it was under uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, so the current prime minister's father. And so my father emigrated, thinking he might live in Montreal, but actually settled in Toronto, because it actually, at the time when he emigrated in 1971... It was a place that lots of Caribbeans congregated. So you kind of move where you sort of have a network um, that you can rely on for various safety nets.
0: So you had community. Correct. Got it. And uh, what about your schooling? Where did you go to school? And...
1: Yeah, I studied um, in a number of countries. Um, my Most of my formal elementary and high school education was done in in Toronto and the Greater Toronto Area, as we moved around a lot.
0: And private but schools or public schools? Private schools or public uh, schools?
1: A mix of publicly funded institution, and towards the end of my high school year, I went to a private school. And I actually went from one extreme. I went from a high school that was in a really, um, con- you know, complex urban environment of Scarborough, Malvern, and then I went to a very elite private girls school towards the end of my high school. And a part of that decision making on the part of my parents was because there was a serious uh, murder ar- oh. around the high school that I was attending at the time. So they made some some serious decisions then. Um, but it was, you know, it was an easy adjusting into such an environment. Um, but I did actually learn a lot because instead of being stuffed into classes of 50 kids and one teacher, I was now in a class of five or six people, right? Wow. I mean that's- sort of the extreme when you pay for education, right? So I, I went from there. um, And then all the opportunities, you know, I wasn't being sort of streamlined to call community college as a to university, because that's where private schools um, intentions are, is that everyone will be a university graduate. And so actually, I went to Nova Scotia, um, in the Maritimes, um, and sort of like, Uh, really inspired me for a lot of the current research that I I do nowadays. I went to Nova Scotia, Halifax, and I studied at St. Mary's, a small liberal arts university. And then I went on to the UK. I did law and um, a master's at Cornell. And after many years of working in the global development sector, I decided to return home and do further graduate work when I, you know, Was much older than most people doing a Ph.D. And so I studied my, I did my Ph.D. at the University of Toronto.
0: So uh, my
1: life is coming full circle.
0: I'm 76 and thinking about a Ph.D. from St. Mary's in in cooperative management or something in in a cooperative space because they have a master's there. But you need to create your own Ph.D. there. So, no you're not that's, that's- you, you were still young when you got your you young.
1: yeah oh that's amazing so you, you're going to the school that I did my my undergrad at I'm looking
0: oh, at it I've been I've been uh, talking to them and seeing about potentially doing that
1: and no come to the University of Toronto and study with me
0: that's a possibility okay <laughs> okay um how did you get into your current research on what I call these CEOs of banks, CEOs of credit unions. How did you get into that?
1: Yeah. um, So um, a bit of a story there, because um, as I just mentioned, I had worked for about 16 years in uh, what we call international development. And I was looking at financial um, access issues for marginalized communities, primarily in parts of Africa. And you may. You and your callers may know of Reverend Leon Sullivan out of mm-hmm. Philadelphia, mm-hmm. had started had you know back in the '60s, early '70s, started the OIC movement, and I worked on the international arm of that Opportunities Industrialization Center movement in North Philly, and actually, I um, I started witnessing actually a lot of self help cooperative ways of doing um, development issues, um, how to co aid, how to actually allocate and distribute resources um, in a more equitable manner um, before we even started thinking about it in the last five, 10 years. And that really stayed with me um, because um, I thought that that's the way we should be doing development. And, and that was the approach of the Sullivan Movement. And so I worked there for 16 years. I was pretty much um, frustrated with the ways in which we were thinking about microfinance and other professionalized forms of finance that was extremely commercialized. And I believed that there was a way that we could do it that was much more people-focused, people-centered, thinking through community cooperation and something like the model that the Sullivan movement was um, advocating for, and so I left eventually, working as a practitioner in international development and finance. Were you in me,
0: in Philadelphia? Were you in Philadelphia yes, for 16
1: I, years? I, no, um, no, a number of institutions, but I stayed with them for I think three or four years, um, mostly traveling in and in and out of Africa. But my hub was out of Germantown in in, in Philadelphia, if people are familiar with the area. Uh, they had a great old mansion there, and it was just that it was turned into offices, and it was just a, an amazing place to live and work and what have you. Um, but no, I worked for a number of international organizations, but that was the one institution that really left uh, a major um, impact on the way that I went forward, but because it, it was pretty early on in my career that I started working with them. So then going forward, I was really particular with where I wanted to work because they kind of had to sort of, I don't know, um, align with those kinds of Sullivan sort of principles or values of of partnership and co-development. In any event, so I decided that um, you know, after being freelance and working a number of years in international development, that I wanted to study this topic called microfinance. And so I'm getting to your point. Microfinance um, was a darling in the development aid industry. It was a way of giving small bits of money uh, to people who were unbanked or underbanked. And Mohammed Yunus and the Grameen Bank really revolutionized, I think, the ways in which commercial banking was happening, particularly in Global South um, developing country contexts. But I really felt like the Black experience, the African diaspora experience was being negated or ignored. And so your listeners can find the book. It's called Politicized Microfinance. It won a number of awards from mostly Black and feminist scholars who saw that the empirical and the voice of Black people of the the African diaspora really shines in that. But what was important in this book was that it really did point to indigenous African financial systems that are really useful and can counter commercialized uh, small-scale banking uh, because it comes from the ground up. And that's where I started becoming interested in what you call sort of these CEOs of um, banks. Um, These are called Roscas
0: rascas and what does rosca stand for
1: oh yes i um, happy to explain that so rosca is an acronym and it stands for rotating savings and credit associations
0: can we stop there because we're going to, have to take our break and we're going to come back and talk more about roscas and what they are and get some examples of them so what we have here ladies and gentlemen is dr caroline Uh, Shanaz Hossein, born in in the U.S., raised in Toronto and been all around the world studying and finding out about these black ladies who are CEOs of banks. We'll be right back to talk more with her. Your news talk station. Welcome back. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. And Dr. Caroline Shanaz uh, Hossein is our guest today. She's an associate professor at the University of Toronto. Uh, Dr. Hossein, are you a tenured professor?
1: Yes, I am. Oh, fantastic.
0: Uh, I've taught 12 years of my life, um, mainly as an assistant professor or lecturer, and I love that work. I love the energy of young folk. And the thinking that goes on with them. Uh, but what we were talking about at Rosca, you had mentioned that Rosca stands for what do they stand for? What's the acronym yeah. stand for?
1: Sure. Um Rosca is a, a global phenomenon and Rosca stands for rotating savings and credit associations. This is a practice that is carried out everywhere um around the globe mostly by women who are not exclusively but mostly by women who often are maligned by conventional um, business systems who or who want an alternative way of sharing resources um, usually money and um, these And they primarily are rooted on the savings component, where people come together, they decide on sort of the rules and the policies of their banking co-op. It's also known by that. But mostly people call them by what I call the vernacular. So many of your listeners here might be familiar with more cultural terms that represent this word called rosca, susu, patna, um, Box Boxhand, um, Osusu, uh, resturn Sol. I mean, there's just dozens and dozens of names in and out of the black um, uh, uh, world, but also people outside of the black world practice these ROSCA systems. And they're basically banking co-ops where people decide on a fixed sum on a specific um, schedule for a, a fixed period of time and they in turn lend their funding, their own money, usually after taxes to one another so that people have a lump an access to a lump sum of cash to do a variety of things, you know, inventory for their businesses send their kids to school, um, you know, pay bills, uh, uh, advance their career in various ways. I mean, it's whatever sort of life need that you need and you're having trouble accessing funds um, because of a variety of reasons um, from your local bank.
0: So last night I listened to a documentary um, on YouTube called um, Banker Ladies, which you had told me about. And there was one lady that said that she was in it and she uh, got enough money to buy a house. I mean, her down payment for a house. So can you save that much money in in Rosca?
1: Yeah, so it really does depend on sort of the governance issues by the group that is a part of that. Some groups in Rosca's can be anywhere from, you know, five to eight members and they can go upwards to hundreds of members so the members who come together will decide on what that fixed sum is so you know it's quite possible that if you have a group of I don't know 20 women and they decide on a bi-weekly basis that they're going to you know drop a thousand dollars that you can have at the end of you know every month a significant amount of money that you can contribute to something like a down payment for a car or a house. Um, that, you know, that will depend on the group dynamic and the kind of governance that they decide to do. Um, that film that you're referring to is Public Access. It's a film that was done by a Haitian Canadian by the name of Esri Mondazir. It's called The Banker Ladies. And it's also free on Films for Action, which is a great hub of free films for folks who are interested in looking about um, really, you know, good documentaries. Um, So it's a 20-minute film, and it gives some sort of education awareness about what these women called the banker ladies are doing with these Rosca systems.
0: So can you give us an example of how this works? You've told us a bit, but just a specific example of one of the Roscas that you've seen, how it works.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So um, just for ease and simplicity, um, I'll use uh, like a small kind of rosca. So a group of 10 women who know and trust each other will be invited to participate in a group. Um, Usually it's done in face. Um, Many of them also do things virtually or by telephone or what have you because of the global pandemic. But usually people round up um, at someone's house, a church basement, a mosque, whatever, a community center. And it usually involves a lot of food and socializing. I like like it
0: already. Food. Okay. (laughs)
1: That's (laughs) the key. I mean, you go to some of these Somali raskas, and they're just fantastic. Like, they'll have their fish samosas and spicy hot tea. The women will come together and talk about issues of concern, usually political issues. It could be domestic issues. And they assist each other. So you have this group of 10 women. They come together. And at the end of it, they decide, you know, um, how they want their banking co-op. They elect usually um, a group, like a, a set of people who operate like a, um, an executive, you have a president, a vice president, a treasurer, and what have you. Um, Some are, you know, it varies depending on the rosca because each group is different. But then, so the Somali Ayutu or Hagbad, that's what they call them, um, will determine who serves on their executive through usually group consensus. Um, They they use the vote when there's trouble, but usually people have a consensus. They all come to an agreement. And so there's a group of 10 women. um, They decide that... We'll do a pool of, you know, you know, a hundred bucks, you know, a hundred bucks a month. Yeah. Say they do a hundred dollars a month or something like that. And so you have uh, 10 women doing a hundred dollars a month just for ease and simplicity. Right. Mm -hmm, So then mm -hmm. that would be, what is that? A thousand dollars, a thousand dollars. So each person would then get $1000 in a cycle for 10 months so, so they'll decide oh, over 10 months there's 10 of us it's usually something simple like that there's 10 of us there's 10 months we'll do we'll drop a $100 sometimes it could be i mean it depends on the cultural context right and then that in turn they decide how who gets access when so one member might say i need a thousand you know i would like to have the first hand the first sum of that money, um, in month one, and then it rotates. But you're always paying your savings to the pool. It's like a pool of money, right? And so the ten women will pool the money every month. It's in usually in the open, and so that thousand dollars is collected, and then it might go to you, Vernon. Well,
0: and no, I got it's go got to it's gotta go to me the first month. I mean that's that's, oh. that's mandatory. I was going to say that if you and I in in this. Group and you let a man in. I hear you say it's mostly women. Oh, yeah. the, on that film last night that they, yeah. she said that in her second go round of running a Rosca, they let a man in. So I thought, okay, there's hope for us. Um, <laughs>
1: No, men men have roskas too. Like, um, it, I mean, in New York and Toronto, a lot of taxi drivers and people who have small businesses will actually do these kinds of systems. It's very popular among Ethiopians who have ikub, also uh, Haitians um, for cleaning or housing, whatever small business they may have. They need access to lump sum of money to do things, and they don't want to take out a loan with and have debt, and then they will, will, yeah, they'll do the, do this kind of thing. And usually, oh, that's a good point. Usually these are interest-free, not exclusively, but, you know, sometimes there it is. Um, Jamaicans have their Jamaican partner, and I've seen them, actually have a small fee attached because the, depending on how big the group is like so if are you're talking like you're having a 100 members or 80 members there's a lot of logistics that can be involved that can be very um laborsome for people or it could involve small costs so members might decide as a group what that amount would be so in any event people contribute make a fixed sum every month at a certain day that's really they're really strict about that. There is a banker lady who's kind of like the head one, and she will decide you know what time what day is convenient, and people usually make the drop off of the hand, and so then you you have these collections. I've participated in a susu myself. We did it through uh, 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 e transfers, and so what you see trickling in on the day that it's due are all these deposits of 100 or $200, what and then you, you get your lump sum. And then the following month, you better do that, too, in a timely basis so that the person, the next person, say it's me, actually gets access to that lump sum. But you're still contributing after you've used the funds. So it's a very democratic process. Um, who... Who goes first? Who who goes last? That's de- that depends on uh, the group consensus. Again, it's not because you're male or you're female or you have a you know you look a certain way or whatever. The group decides based on discussion the order of how it goes. Some people will pull a lottery to de- determine who goes first and who goes last. Some people voluntarily. Usually, it's consensus. Most of the ones I've seen, people say, "Oh no, you have you I have a school question. business." I, I'm sorry for yeah, sure. that question.
0: I've got the first draw. So, month one, every the ten people you included put in a hundred dollars. Yeah. I get the first draw because we've agreed. Then I decide I'm not going to put no more money in. I got I put in a yeah. hundred. I got a thousand. That's ten times my investment.
1: Yeah. What causes okay.
0: me to keep putting it in?
1: I think it's it's the group. Yeah, that's you know that's group consensus and uh, camaraderie. You're supporting. You're owning this bank as well. Um, people are tied to each other much more than just because of financial transactions. Remember what I started off saying? I said it's about sharing fish samosas and drinking spicy tea. Okay. okay.
0: Well, I, that's, okay. I want to keep that. Uh, I mean, I there, there's that. a
1: friendship and there's trust and there's this concept of reciprocity, right?
0: All right. We'll be back, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I wish I could get some fish. Uh, samosas right now but we'll be right back <laughs> uh, and talk more about rosca's. me too Welcome back, everybody. This is Varna Noakes, and the program is Everything Cooperative. And we're talking to Dr. Caroline Shanaz-Hussein, associate professor at the University of Toronto, who has been born in New York, grew up in Toronto, and she's been traveling around the world doing research on RASCA's, and we've, we've been talking about them. Um, Carol, I, these are cooperatives. And I say you can tell a co-op if they are being run by the values and principles of cooperation, no matter what they're called. And cooperatives are based on the values of self-help. That's the first thing you said, self-help. Self-responsibility, you talked about that. Democracy, you talked about that. Equality, equity, and solidarity. You've talked about all of these values. But in the tradition of the founders of cooperation, members believe in the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others. I like to say caring for one another, and you've talked about the social part about this, and then caring for one another is what caused them to continue to pay, even though they may have gotten their draw. Caring for one another And these are low-income communities you talked about all around the world. Uh, So I want to talk about the principles later on because they are also hitting the principles. But before we do that, I want you to talk about your research. Can you tell us um, about the research and some of the things you've learned from this research? Uh, Well, let's talk about the research first. Where have you been doing the research?
1: Yeah, so, um, I mean, I started a lot of my research um, back in 2008, so it gives you a bit of a timeline of how long I've been looking at issues of financial exclusion, and um, particularly for the African diaspora. Most of my research has been conducted for the African diaspora and about the African diaspora in the Caribbean and as well as in uh, Canada's two major cities, Toronto and Montreal. I've also done some work research-wise in Ethiopia and Ghana because it connects to a lot of the alternative economic uh, institutions that I study uh, right now called ROSCAs, these rotating savings and credit associations. And so... um, The research that I'm working on right now, actually I'm working on, many people can find them on my personal website. I have a lot of open access materials if people are more interested in looking at these alternative uh, solidarity um, financial systems um, called ROSCAs. And um, I have been working for, I guess, about just 10 years. It's almost 10 or 11 years studying Rosca systems. It probably should have been my first book. But because of the labor and the intensity of looking for deeply hidden cooperative institutions like ROSCA's, it makes the work take time to get at the information and to speak to people. Many people who are in hiding as they do these kinds of mutual aid, self-help, cooperative money banking systems. Why would they, and,
0: be, why would they be in hiding?
1: Well, in the Canadian context, so I was getting to that. Um, I'm actually working on a book called "The Banker Ladies," and it's the book that it's going under peer review right now. And it is probably a it's a pretty trying book in that. Um, what it shows is that the Caribbean banker ladies have um, a lot of respect and they're admired for their ingenuity for creating these informal, cooperative-like institutions called ROSCAs, so much so that formal banking institutions will mimic and copy them. Okay? Okay. However, that story changes in the Canadian context.
0: So they're cherished, uh, admired in and the Caribbean. copied in the
1: Caribbean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. But th- there's a departure um, from that in the Canadian setting where there's lots of African and Canadian, um, Caribbean Canadians living in major cities like Toronto and Montreal who actually hide these systems with good reason.
0: And that's what I want to know. What's, what's the reasons? Why would they hide this?
1: Because of um, systemic exclusion, because these institutions are misunderstood, anything that I think Black people in general, those of the African diaspora, try to do for themselves with each other um, becomes scrutinized. It becomes labeled um, in very negative terms. It's viewed as illicit and illegal activities. They are not appreciated for the civic society building that these institutions bring um, because of the fear that largely uh, marginalized communities feel by the greater society that these Rosca systems could be viewed as something illicit.
0: So, Um, um, I'm sorry. I just, I guess, uh, you're talking big words. I got to bring it down a little bit. Yeah,
1: sure. So, you got black
0: folk that's in Canada that's brought this from the Caribbean, which came through Africa, these systems. And they are doing these systems. They are collecting monies in the groups like you talked about 10 people, 20 people, 100 people. Put in money every month, normally some time frame, by monthly, every every once a month, and after
1: then after tax income,
0: and and then they put in after tax income, okay, and then they decide how much they'll put in, when they get it taken out, who gets to take it out, is total uh, by the group, which is a collective, which is a, a cooperative uh, thing, but the greater society, the white folk in ch- in charge, okay see them as negative. I don't I, I want to ask you why, but what do they, you say they label them. What do they label these Roscas?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. So, um, I've spoken to dozens and dozens of women, and this is the departure from the Caribbean case. It made no sense to the women I met with in Ghana or Ethiopia or any of the five countries I studied in the the Caribbean. So, this is very unique to the Canadian case. And in the future, I plan to expand this Rosca work in the U.S. because I have a strong feeling that people who emigrate to Western areas are also enduring this sort of hidden form of are feeling that they have to hide their forms of cooperation because of um, the stigma they receive. Basically, Somali women who veil, who are practicing Muslims, who are unable to take a loan out of a commercial bank because of the interest rate, it goes against their faith. They create their Ayutu or Hagbag banks, but they are viewed as money launderers and terrorists who are funding al-Shabaab over and over again. I heard that from Somalis. I heard that from Egyptian Canadians. I heard that from Sudanese Canadians that the stigma was so intense and these women are only when their apartment blocks are being raided for various reasons because they live in low income communities. Um, the, The police might be there for just reasons to sort of look for drugs or what have you but in this seizure they're taking the ayutu and hagbad collections that may have just occurred
0: Wait, um, I'm, I'm sorry and- I'm sorry I'm sorry I, I, I got to get this Yep so so these ladies they are veiled they are muslims and yep. they have this Rasca you said it's somalian perhaps and they call them ayutu that's their that's ayutu their name or okay. yep that's their name that they local name for a roska and the police may come in and they're looking for somebody that's murdered somebody or they're looking for somebody that is producing drugs and the drugs sure. is the cause of the murder so there may be good intentions for why they're there but mm-hmm. when they go around and they find this money they take the money what do
1: they they confiscate it because they suspect that because they don't understand the concept of Roscoe or ayutu or hagbad when these women try to reason with them that this is a self help group, um, they are ignored or turned away, being viewed as doing something, you know, money laundering uh, for some, you know, crooked. You know, scheme or something. And it's the lack of education that's primarily why we created the film called The Banker Ladies, because the women themselves urged me to create something that could bring some sort of a cultural understanding of how these ancient African self help cooperative systems. Actually help humanity and are helping Canadians. However, these women in the process of assisting people who've been rejected from commercial banks um, are finding a way to support brothers and sisters access the resources they need. They have to do that under very um, covert Ways, um, If you know what I mean. So, yes, they're being vilified. Jamaicans, lots of Caribbean women have reported to me over the years that they are viewed as drug mules or they're involved in some sort of drug operation because of the stereotypes that go with black, various black communities. That Jamaicans the women- have the
0: drugs. They they do good ganji weed. OK, like I got it. So but you, that's yeah.
1: legal in Canada. So it is. Not even, <laughs> <laughs> you know that shouldn't even be an issue. But they're seeing anything that these women are doing as threatening, um, as as something that is negative, as opposed to seeing it as self-help, contributing positively to Canadian society. Instead, they're being labeled in very negative ways. Um, A a Trinidadian banker lady told me that, you know, people tell her that she's running a pyramid scheme uh, because again, the lack of education, the lack of understanding that people are actually good citizens trying to contribute And to fill the gaps of inequities that are occurring in our society. And here these women are standing up using a lot of their free labor to make sure that they're caring for community because other professional entities, like whether they are professionalized social services or commercial banks or credit union or even formal co-ops, are just not reaching that demand. And so these women are reaching out to those people who have been harmed in our society. We should be congratulating these women. We should be supporting these women. Instead, we make them hide what they do in our society.
0: So I got, they're vilified. They're talking negative about, they labeled as drug mules, pyramid schemes, financing, uh, terrorists. They're being mm-hmm. terrorized saying that they're financing terrorists. That's sad. That's so ironic and sad and they're providing a much needed service to community so it it fits the values of um, there's a guy from synagogue named papa sin who said that uh, co-ops help to solve a community problem and this is community problem getting financing for whatever the need is and if there's no community problem there's no need for a co-op well there's a lot of community problems particularly in marginalized communities black and Mm -hmm. brown and native communities so yeah correct There's a need. But what I don't get is in Canada there seems that cooperatives seem to be much more known and used than in the US. So it seemed like the cooperatives would embrace this because it fits the values and as we'll talk perhaps a little later, principles of cooperation.
1: Yeah, um, so you would like to think that that's the story. You know, I'm a student of the economie sociale, which is the social economy that came out of Quebec. And it's a world renowned system. Um, Many of your listeners may or may not have heard of the Desjardins movement, which started as a caisse populaire, which was very informal, its origins, started off like something like a rosca. Um, It eventually evolved into what is a caisse populaire or credit union. But there was a lot of support by the state to make sure that a minority of French-speaking white Catholics had that support. Well, black women in this country are doing something very similar, but the support by the state and policy makers and those working in community economic development is absent. And that's the issue here. So why are we not, the question is, and this borders on the work of uh, Professor Nina Banks, is why are we not compensating black women who really do the bulk work of community and cooperative development? Why are we not supporting
0: them? That's a good question to come back to talk about. We want to talk a lot more about the future, what what happens in the future. We'll be right back. Your news talk station. Information is power. This program is brought to you by the National Cooperative Bank. They have been our sponsor since day one. And unfortunately, our main cheerleader was Chuck Snyder, and he passed away um, a few weeks ago, about four weeks ago. And last (laughs) week, his replacement, at least in an interim, was on the show, Mr. Fannin. So... They will still support us, I was told. I, I like them as a supporter because they get it. And I was wondering when we were talking, we we're going to talk about future, but could the bankers there, could these major, the major systems, the capitalists, could they find this as a threat and help to put these negative labels on these ladies that are working for their communities? Have you had any indication that that might be the case?
1: No, I don't. I'm not sure that it is. um, Well, I think in some ways, when you think about capitalist ethos that permeates our society that has an impact, I don't think that there is any kind of direct influenced by commercial bankers who are trying, at least in the Canadian context, who are trying to um, vilify these women. I think it's just... The, the sort of ethos that floats around in our society, that individualized forms of business is, is what re- reigns supreme. So that's sort of the sort of contradictory positioning in Canadian banking. We have this great legacy of cooperativism. However, there is a very strong dominating presence of commercialized forms of banking. Um, So I think that these are marginal, you know, Rosca's co-ops, credit unions, these are marginal uh, players in our whole ecosystem. And so Rosca's are actually at the very tail end. And, you know, that's perhaps where they need to find some support is actually within the cooperative sector Mm -hmm. who needs to start recognizing and seeing them as part of their cooperative or solidarity ecosystem um, so that they can have some support.
0: So I would love to see the research you find out in the U.S., because I would think the National Cooperative Bank, there's the co-bank for mainly farmers, there are all of these credit unions, and we have a, a 130 million cooperators in the U.S., mostly belonging to credit unions and rural electric consumer co-ops. That they would embrace these roscas, I would think, from the people that I have met. And it's uh, how do you, how do you get them known, and how to get some kind of policies in place where the roscas could get support from local credit unions, as an example. And this sixth principle of cooperation among co-ops, it is definitely a co-op from everything that I can see, uh, and that would be one of the future kinds of things that could happen. And I would like to get from you, what are some of the other kinds of things that you can see happening in the future for Rosca's around the world?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, that's a great question. It's probably a whole other show. Um, but I want to say that. I'm prepared have,
0: for that. A whole other show. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but,
1: um, yeah, the future of Rosca's or the future of cooperation. Um, I have a book coming out. I co-edited it with a woman, a professor in Kerala, India, by the name of Dr. Christabel PJ. And she is, has been really instrumental in the Kundumbashri movement, both worked there in practice, but also writes on uh, women's empowerment and this Kundumbashri system, which is a really complicated term, but it actually means prosperity for family. That really looks sort of at the informal cooperative sectors by, by castes and sort of other backward cast, scheduled tribes, people who are completely um, marginalized in the society and try to bring them into the development process. And we co-edited a book. And in, in that book, there are case studies about Roscas that are happening around the world, which could be very useful um, for us in the West who think about how we do economic development inclusively because there are other places like Kerala, India, like Ghana, in, um, you know, West Africa, who have brought in and formalized a subsect of the SUSU system um, in their banking as part of the banking menu that people can tap into. And so there are, and South Africa has recognized StockBell, which is a kind of a Rosca system through a national network. So there are lots of examples that are happening around the globe that we could actually tap into to think about how do we build in, in not only inclusively but equitably uh, when we think of those who are left out of, you know, mainstream business? How How do we rethink what partners look like? What have marginalized people been doing? How do we start to support them? What my big thing lately has been sort of, we need to incorporate the banker ladies as development workers in our own country. They should be advising us on global economic policies.
0: Well, and I, I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Incorporate the Rosca ladies. These are these bankers, these what I call CEOs. You sure. want to incorporate them in some kind of formal. This is a whole informal system right now. So yep. you want to formalize this system in the future and bring well, them sex- in
1: a subset of them who are willing to do that. Yes.
0: Okay. But bring them in as, as, and these ladies as development folk, how do you (laughs) see that?
1: Because they actually have firsthand knowledge of what it means to be left out and excluded. And and they tell me this themselves, you know, um, these really brash, young, super educated folks, completely detached from any kind of poverty experience or lived experience are coming in and creating sort of parallel systems that don't make sense to them. Here are these women, we call them essential workers during the pandemic, do so much of our, our much needed work. And on top of that, they're also organizing and leading these, what you call, I like it, the CEOs of these banking, informal banking co-ops. And we take their labor for free to help build up society. And I think that we're using them and they're actually filling in the gaps for inequities that happen in economic development. And so nonprofits and all these other agencies that get subsidies from the states should actually be writing ah, job Got it. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Huh. So <laughs> job
1: they should write job descriptions that include people who actually have this experience on how to organize these banking co-ops.
0: So recognizing <laughs> the economic development that these banker ladies do, these CEOs of these informal banking systems, informal banks, and then using tax dollars that these nonprofit organizations, they're already writing grants for it and writing some grants so they can pay these ladies for this work that they are doing, recognizing the work and paying them for the work.
1: Correct. I mean, um, and and that will hopefully put a halt to all this um, stigma that is happening and these labels that are happening to actually witness the contributions that are happening for probably – Around 100 years, for as long as black folk have been emigrating and moving around in the regions to Canada and elsewhere, they have been bringing their financial technologies with them. So whether it's food, music and dance, m- co-op money programs, travel with them, too. And we should be just appreciating them as much as we appreciate things like Carabana.
0: You know? So I have it. <laughs> And we only have a few more minutes left, but I have it that at the center of humanity, as long as you talked about a hundred years, and we and, and and we brought this from West Africa, South Africa, Ubuntu. Um, I am here to help you, and you are here to help me. This whole yep. thing of us lifting each other up, I think, is at the core of humanity. Okay, Correct. so when you say a hundred years, no, 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 it's thousands and Sorry thousands more. and thousands, thousands of years, we've been Correct. doing this. But marginalized people have had to people that are left out or, as you said, in the Muslim world, they can't get the loans because they're mm-hmm. interest loans and they don't do interest. So I get that. So how we can identify this? OK, what what kind of steps? This is a political issues. How do you get the support of the voters to get to the politicians to make this happen?
1: Yeah. So right now we're trying to raise consciousness. It starts with research and it starts with doing talks like you're doing right now uh, to get word out so that people listening can also start advocating and sharing knowledge about what these systems are. But I'm also working with a number of women to create what we call a banker ladies council, because our plan is to create a number of white papers to start to work Directly with policymakers and those who are in the sector who control these kind of subsidies for them to think about how do we start developing something called like a ROSCA network. That is not only good for Canada, but for humanity. How do we create a Rosca network to bring awareness and understanding of the varieties of cooperation and cooperativism that actually does exist and that we start doing away with these boundaries of what it is, to be a cooperator and on what it is not. So what is a cooperative identity is something that we need to start thinking about, and it has to start being inclusive of black women as the protagonists of that movement.
0: So I just want to give a shout-out to Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhardt, who talked on this show about mutual aid societies, which seems like they're very similar, if not the same. But their, their focus was mainly when, when there was problems, death, sickness, disability, old age, unemployment, when there was hardship, <laughs> Then the mutual aid, the money came in, but it was collecting money. Even the slaves did it. Okay. Yep. So it's all over.
1: Correct. Marcus Garvey, huge, huge, did a lot of that work, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Marcus Garvey with his co-op systems, uh, I think it was burial and funeral um, societies, all of that collectivity that uh, Professor Gordon Nembhard speaks about. Many, many scholars have been noting and documenting this. So it's a legacy that we
0: have. It's a legacy, and we've got to go from there. Listen, everybody. We're going to have her back on to talk more about her, her um, research, and what she's learning, and live cooperatively this next week. We'll see you next Thursday. Thank you.